Opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. The following programming is sponsored by Six Feet Over Under Productions. The views expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of this station, its management, or Beasley Media Group. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM, 97.5 HD2, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news of the world of sports. Jeff, the world of sports is going crazy, and we're going to jump right into it, right? Yeah, why don't we talk to somebody who decided to flee the country? Yes, he yeah. decided to get out of here and take a couple of days away, right? Keith, just chilling in Toronto, not much going on, right? Keith Pompey? Hey. Couple of days, bro. I'm gonna be up here until 2023. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you, Americans. I'm, I'm guessing you're not a fan of the. Oh, did you hear that? Yeah, I know. You are. You you already defected. <laughs> I'm I'm guessing that you didn't enjoy the two days off in between. Well, hold the on. Games. Wait, wait. If he's gonna do that, let's see. Do you even know the first line after O Canada? Yeah, they say it twice. <laughs> 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 nice try. Not true. <laughs> M- much different tone to our interview this week, Mr. Pompey. We, uh, the sky was potentially falling last week. Nobody knew what to expect. Now all of a sudden the Sixers are up 3-0 after Embiid hits a shot that uh, we'll see that replay for a really long time. Tell me what it was like to hear absolute silence with all those fans in that arena at the end of that game. I mean, for lack of a better word, I guess it's, it was surreal, you know, I, I, and, and the reason why I'm saying that is because, you know, being in that arena um, three years ago and when you saw how crazy it was when he when when Kawhi made it to see that, you know, the same fan base actually going quiet. It was it was a surreal type of thing. And, yeah, but um, they're always polite. Not this game. Yeah, they're crazy. Yeah, they're it's, funny. it's funny. They're, they're, you know what? I'll be honest with you. A lot of, I mean, Canadians are polite, but let's just say they love their basketball and they love trolling people. I mean, you know, they were getting away with certain things there that um, if it was in the in Philly, people would be writing articles about how bad fans are. Look, I'm just going to say this. If I wanted to take a soundtrack of the audience to play on the air for this show, I would have to bleep things out in order for us not to get taken off the air based on what the fans were chanting there in Toronto. So they could be yeah. nice, but they were certainly animated over Joel Embiid. Oh, yeah. they yeah. It's one of those things. He's like the villain. I mean, he's that guy. And he loves it. But he's the villain that they love, you know, a trolling, talking trash to. Every time he gets the ball, they want to boo him. Um, you know, people were going there with sign, big signs of him when he was crying. You know, they call him the baby. So it's, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things. I I dare any one of those people to call him a baby in a back alley. (laughs) He's 7'3". You you don't call him a baby. I love how he found Drake on the way off the court. come on. Keith, he made yeah, a I beat. realize this is a hockey town, dude. I know, but they're, they're he, yeah. Well, well, you know what? Ask them the last time their hockey team won the Stanley Cup. See how see how how bo- boisterous they it's, get. It's from actually that. Been, come on. It's it's been longer since the Flyers won the Stanley Cup, Jeff. <laughs> 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 that's that's how long it's been since they have. So so here's my question, Tobias Harris, where did he find his game? Um, you know, I, I, that's a, that's a crazy, I mean, not crazy. That's a good question. Um, you know, I I think it's just a matter of adjusting to it. And, and then also I do think that Sixers are incorporating them more in what they're trying to do. You know, for a while it was just, 
you know, you just stand at the at at the three point line, and we're going to kick it out to you, and you and you do a spot up three, a catch and shoot. And I, I think like they're getting them more involved. Also, let's face it, he's getting a lot of he's playing better defense, you know, getting out in transition so that and running so that basically leads to him getting some easy baskets. You know what I mean? In transition where there's really not a lot of plays drawn, but you can just be a scrappy guy. So yeah, he's he to me, um, his play has been the X factor um, on both ends of the court because you know you know what you expect what Harden's going to do, you know what Joel's going to do, you expect Maxi to ascend. You don't expect him to score thirty eight points though, but you expect him to have uh, a pretty good game. But then Tobias was the one who was struggling early on, and the fact that he's playing well, I think, is a major major reason behind a three zero start. You know I got to ask you about Tyrese Maxey. Uh, you've tried to get me to slow my roll on him, so as Jeff, I never have. So I won't now. What do you think of the rest of the league seeing what a lot of people here in Philly have seen this series? Yes, 38 points more than you would expect, but still, even on nights that there isn't 38 points, his three-point percentage is better, his decision-making is better. He's aggressive but controlled. What are you seeing from Tyrese Maxey? I mean, I see a lot, uh, but but I also think that uh, uh, the rest of the league is kind of having, like, putting it on pause. I mean, because they're looking at this Toronto Raptors team and seeing a team that likes to get out and go and run, and they see a team that, that's not really guard-heavy, they're, 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 they're power-forward-heavy. So that's, a, that's creating a mismatch. Because if you notice, when they kick the ball out to them, more often than not, there's power-forward guarding them. And that guy can't guard him. And so just by my looking at TV and doing all that other stuff and seeing people analyze the Sixers, I'm hearing a lot of, well, Maxie's not going to be able to do that against the Miami Heat. He you agree with them? Against that. Um, you know what? I, I, I guess it's kind of like a wait and see type of thing. I mean, it's, it's easy to say no, but you got to put them in, thr- in front of them. Now, the one thing that I will say is instead of him being paired up against, uh, what's his name, uh, against uh, a power forward, Pascal Siakam or someone, he's going to be paired up against a Jimmy Butler and a Kyle Lowry. Now, the one thing that people need to understand, though, is he gave Jimmy Butler the business the last time they played. So he did well, but I think that it's going to be more geared towards a half-court set um, do I expect him to get 38 points? No. Do I expect him to score anywhere from 18 to 22? Average that? Yes, I do. I think he's going to get his. I just don't think that the way that team is set up, that he's going to dominate as much as he's dominating right now. If that makes sense. And that's not a knock against him. It's just that you're just playing a different team that's, that's going to basically cater to stopping you more so than the Toronto Raptors did. And they have uh, a, a better uh, a better roster um, to probably help out with that. You know, look, this week I've been accused of not understanding reality. I'm a little confused right now. I just heard a conversation between Jason and Keith about Miami versus Philadelphia. Last week I could have sworn I heard somebody on this broadcast say that Toronto was going to win. Are you changing your prediction? 
I'm not changing my prediction, oh. but you said something about you said something about <laughs> reality. So it's like reality is that no team has ever he didn't let you go like man he brought that up yeah yeah just, so, just yeah, keep I, in I, mind I admit, all I, I, those I michigan comments just came home to roost he, there's plenty of dumb things that jeff says on the radio too so don't worry <laughs> um, about it we can go back and clip but, stuff yeah, if you want don't, 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 don't worry like you know see when a dose of reality of is like going to a michigan ohio state <laughs> oh. game and proclaiming them the national champions <laughs> and then all of a sudden <laughs> all right let, you're let, never on empty when Georgia it comes to anyone? that all right. never. <laughs> so i'm gonna give credit to two people who um i've been pretty critical of this season who? one one danny green who has looked rejuvenated out there making matisse Thibel's absence not as concerning and doc rivers for getting the timeout in overtime to draw up the play for Embiid for the winner uh i have put that out there. Your thoughts on Danny Green's play and Doc's coaching in this series, which the concern was Nick Nurse without coach him. I, I haven't really seen that yet. Nah, I, I haven't. I, I, but here's the one thing, and, and like, okay, I'm gonna start off with 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 Danny, right? So when you talk about Danny Green, Danny Green is a champion, right? Three time champion. The the intensity tends to elevate in the postseason. And if you remember last year, Danny Green had a great series. He, he was playing well in the playoffs in the second round, and then he was injured. When he became injured, that's when stuff starts falling apart a little bit, right? So, you know, I, I, when you look at a guy like Danny, he gets it. He knows that it's go time now, you know, and not saying, you know, he's, it seems like he's probably a little bit more locked in. He's doing things. You can tell that the moment isn't too big for him. Whereas some other guys, it is, right? In regards to Doc, the one thing about Doc that Doc Rivers doesn't get a lot of credit for is plays coming out of timeout. He draws them up. A lot of people talk about it. I mean, everyone says it. That's like his, that, that's, that's the best thing he does. But I also want to say that timeout that he called, that was great. I mean, because it got to a point, it was like Joel Embiid, was about to, he threw up this crazy shot. The crowd was going crazy, and then all of a sudden, timeout. And people were like, "What? What?" You know. So to me, that was like the best coaching moment around, right? Now the thing about Nick Nurse, I think that Nick Nurse is still a great coach. I know a lot of people are saying this and saying that, but I think like Nick Nurse, he doesn't have the bodies. He doesn't have anyone out there who can defend Embiid. So he's been doing a lot of gambling. And the thing about when you gamble as a coach, and if you if you make it, everyone's like, great call, great call. But if, if it doesn't go right, then all of a sudden it's kind of sort of like, why did he do that? Why did he do this? But at the same time, he knows that I can't play this team straight up. You, you know, so, I can't do that. You sort of saw that on the last play with Embiid. Part of the reason that he was open for the shot right before the inbound, Nick Nurse told Fred Van Fleet to get back towards the middle. So Van Fleet goes from the inbounder with Danny Green to in the paint, and all of a sudden Danny Green gets an easy entry, and Van Fleet can't close out on Embiid, who nails the three-pointer. So, I mean, you kind of saw that with the matchup that they set up. And here's something else too, though. Dan, today, Grant, Danny Green was like, you know, where he put Fred to at 
that's where the Sixers were going. So if you think about it, it was like, I mean, Nick Nurse saw something and he says, oh, we got to get back. So so that kind of worked out. The only problem is, it's just, you know, you gamble, you go ahead, you do that, but you left another thing open. You know, that was from, that was from Danny Green making a smart play, you know, realizing like, hey, he's going, I can't go there. Let's, let's alter it. Let me just give it to MB, you know, uh, in the wing instead. Yeah. The, how does Embiid end up with the ball? I mean, you have a situation, you have a, you have a seven foot center who's taken a three point shot right after the coach called the timeout when he took, takes a wild shot. Was that something that Doc Rivers thought was actually going to be the, the pass inbound? I mean, he like again. The the, the pass was going to be. You talking about the play that he drew? Yeah, yeah. Like I, according to Danny, they were going to go where Fred Blanbleet was. They were going to go there. Right. But what happened is, you know, they 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 off. He gave it to him, you know, more shallow, um, than deep. You know what I mean? To get the ball. I mean, that's where they were going to go. Um, but the play was drawn up to have Tobias run the pick. Yeah, for yeah, the shooter the run up, yeah, yeah. To come it was open. it was like to clear everybody out. Everybody, if you notice, everybody went on the wing. Other guys went to the wing. Tobias did the pick, and I'm assuming instead of Joel going to the wing, I mean to the perimeter, he was going to turn and go towards the basket, and that's what Nick Nurse saw. Mm-hmm. And then Joel, you know, they it, it was just. Smart play by the by the guys. You know what I'm saying? Like it was smart play by the guys. So okay, teams up three nothing. They haven't really missed Thibel at this point. And when we talked to you last week, you had been telling me that Thibel was auditioning for fourth quarter minutes. After the way this team has played without him as a starter, is Thibel auditioning for any part of game minutes other than coming off the bench at this point? I mean, is Doc gonna <laughs> fix what ain't broken? Nah, he got to play. He's going to play. <laughs> like, believe me, he's going to play. I mean, you know, right now you look at this, you look at this team and, and they're extremely power forward heavy, you know, with that being so, you know, but I think when you go up against a guy like Jimmy Butler, you got some of these other guys, um, you know, all these quality perimeter players that they have in Miami, he's going to play. Now, will, will he go back to the starter? I don't see him going back to the starter. Because I think you, if it's not broke, don't you can't fix it. But my thing is, you're going to need his defense, you know, to to defend some of these guys. And right about now, you know, when you look at that roster, yes, you got Shake Milton playing. You got a couple other guys playing, but they're not the, the type of defender defenders that um, Matisse is. So, yeah, he he's going to continue to be in in the lineup. For all of the attention that Doc raised, Rotation. not liking the question about DeAndre Jordan and Paul Reed at the end of the season, we've seen DeAndre Jordan riding the bench rather well with Paul Reed getting some some pluses in the minutes that he's had. What have you seen out of Paul Reed there? The, the moment hasn't seemed too big for him. It did in game three. Yeah. Yeah, man. Like in that third quarter when they took Embiid out the game, that's when they get, <laughs> they finally picked up the lead. Um, so you know, what does I, Doc I, I felt like, what does Doc take from that then? Like if if the moment looks too big for a young guy there, 
do do you as a coach not put him in that moment or do you need to expose it to him again what do you know about you know you know you're somebody who's watched doc what's his philosophy with these guys at this point I mean, it's, it's a tough thing because if you look at Embiid, Embiid was gassed. He was gassed in that fourth quarter, like late in the fourth quarter. It was like guys were running down the court going back and forth. So if you're the coach, I mean, I mean you're, you're, the reason why I'm, I'm saying it's tough is because you know that you got Joel. He can only play X amount of minutes just because of fatigue and everything like that. So it's like if I keep him in too long, when I really need him in the fourth quarter, he's he's you know he's not going to really give me much because he's out of out he he's uh out of out of breath. But if I take him out, then all of a sudden the game can turn, and I and I felt like you know Doc saw a couple minutes of that, and Joel came in earlier than he normally does because of that. So I mean that's something that you got to pay attention to, like moving forward because. Yes, he played well, you know, for the most part. But then I saw Precious Achua just destroying him, like dunking on him. Guys were driving the lane on him. It was like it was like momentum changed, and the crowd was getting into it. So, you know, but if you're Doc, like if you think about it, you know, Joel Embiid plays the entire uh, first quarter, then he comes out and he plays some in in, in a second. And he plays the majority of the third quarter. And then you bring this guy in, the backup, and then he starts the fourth. And then around that six-minute mark is when you bring Joel back in. But in this occasion, it was like around nine minutes when he came back in. And then you saw it like late in the game when everybody was running up and down. I call it chucking and missing. It was just coming down, throwing up bad shots, and running back in the other defense. You saw Joel laboring. He was tired. He was fatigued. So if you're a doc, you got to be a little, you got to fill it out and you have to gamble because you have to give Joel a break. But at the same time, you know, if I'm doc, I'm a little nervous after what I saw late in that third quarter, early fourth. Is there any chance that doc decides to gamble and give somebody minutes who hasn't had minutes? Because you can't do this. If it gets into, let's say they get the rest, which you hope they get, if they're able to finish this off tomorrow night. You're going to get into rounds that are not going to be four games and out. We're not doing Moses Malone, fo fo fo. We're, we're going to have tough series, and they're going to get more physical. And if they get more physical, he's going to get tired more. And you can't just leave him in there and have him standing at the top of the key. He's got to get rest, and somebody's got to play. Yeah, I mean, he's going to have to do that. But at the same time, you got to... You see the, I mean, who are you going to put in there? You're going to put uh, DeAndre in there. Um, you know, can, like, can Bassie get some minutes? I know putting, he's been out, I mean, right? He's hurt. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, right. I don't even, to be honest with you, like at this particular time, the game might be a little bit too big for get Bassie. Not because of he can't do it, because of, you know, you're just going to bring a, a young guy in who hasn't really played that much for a while and then throw him into the fire. You, you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, maybe, and then, you know, he's still injured. Um, but, you know, you know, I, I think right now, Paul Reed gives them their best option. He gives them their best option. James Harden fouled out at the end of the game last night. Uh, for the series, he's shooting 44, or, or first time he shot over 44% in the last nine games. Last night he shot 54% in the other game. 
what are you seeing out of him? His passing seems to be that he's the facilitator. Can the facilitator James Harden be what this team needs, or do they need the shooter James Harden if they're to move forward? Um, I, I think that's a to me that's a little tricky. Um, I would, what they need James Harden to do is be a facilitator, but they need him to be able to knock down open shots when he gets it. Um, I, I feel like that gives them their best opportunity to win. If James Harden, James Harden, the scorer to me is ISO James, where he he like dribble dribbles, everybody standing around watching, who either do a step back or he'll drive the lane. At this particular time either because of the hamstring or because of, you know, maybe father time, he doesn't have the lift on his shot and he can't blow by people like he used to. So basically all he's doing is driving the lane and begging to get fouled, right? And what happens is a lot of people just stand around. And when you look at it, he was doing playing that way in the first half and they were down by 17. And what they started doing was um, they started basically giving the ball to Maxi, and then let Maxi bring it up, and then they would initiate stuff through him, right? Because in the reason being, what also what Toronto was doing was Toronto was taking away the passing lanes, and they were prob they were forcing James to be ISO James or be James the scorer, and you know I don't think that he can the Sixers could win that way now. If he's the facilitator, but then they do that open, they 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 you know they find him an open shot, or you know certain times he can drive the lane, he can do it. But aside from that, I I don't think that what we're seeing from James Harden we saw this season is going to change, and I don't think that he can be that guy like how he was in Houston to 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 help them elevate them right now. All right. Well, we know you got to go, but before you go, as the tour guide for Toronto, since I can't be there for you and you don't really have much to do until tomorrow, I mm-hmm. want you to walk down the street, go to okay. the go to the Hockey Hall of Fame. He's taking notes. Yeah, go, you see him take out a notepad. I see you took a pen and paper. <laughs> go to the hockey. He's the, a reporter. He's taking notes. <laughs> go down to the street. Go to the Hockey Hall of Fame. And just keep asking all the people there where the recent Stanley Cup trophies are for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Oh, that'll go well. All right, and, s- <laughs> and see how well that goes for you, okay? He, he wants to make sure you don't let, they, they don't let you back yeah, in the they, country. They, they, they may take my passport from you. <laughs> all right, everybody follow Keith at Pompeii on Sixers. Read him in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Listen to him at Locked on Sixers. Always appreciate the time. Safe travels back, Keith. All right, thanks for having me, fellas. Take care of yourself, man. <laughs> Jeff... Again, a, a week changes everything. I mean, we got to be off the air now to, to go to break. And yep. when we come back, let's hit the commercial. When we come back, we'll talk to Ian O'Connor and keep the conversation going. Sounds Stick with good. us. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. Jeff, this man has covered everything from the Olympics to the Masters for the 22nd time just a few weeks ago. Now he is a four-time New York Times bestseller. 
author Ian O'Connor with his new book, Coach K, The Rise and Reign of Mike Krzyzewski. How does it sound to uh, be introduced as a four-time New York Times bestseller, as somebody who started as a copy boy there? <laughs> right. I I did. I started as a copy boy at the New York Times, and I actually had a job before that doing uh, town meetings, obituaries, death notices, and local high school sports for the Star-Ledger in New Jersey uh, for one of their bureaus in Springfield. And then ended up at the Times as a copy boy. My my dream was to be a columnist, a Sports of the Times columnist at the Times. They had a, a number of Pulitzer winners uh, who had uh, filled that role. And so that didn't happen. But uh, this is sort of the next best thing. And I'm not even sure I ever read the four New York Times bestsellers when I was young in the business. So to have four... <laughs> My resume is a pretty good thing. I was going to say, it seems like you, you worked out pretty well for yourself. Before we get on to the book, I had to ask, one of your last assignments as a copy boy was to cover Reggie Jackson. Uh, how did you break all the rules to go get a picture with Reggie Jackson that I've seen out there? That was a, it was actually an assignment and he had some event. He was promoting a, a baseball card and so I was young and that's something I would never do today. I ended up talking to him and said, by the way, uh, I was always a Reggie guy. And my brother was a Thurman guy. And Reggie and Thurman, for those uh, old enough to recall, uh, did not get along uh, while they were uh, leading the Yankees to, uh, to championships. And, and their relationship started to improve, unfortunately, before Thurman's tragic death. But uh, anyway, there was, it was either when you, when you were a Yankee fan growing up, in that day, you you had to pick. It was either Reggie or Thurman. So he he got a kick out of that. And he said, "Let's take a picture." So we did, and it's something I've kept. And, and I've reminded him of that. I'm sure he'd long forgot, but we'd see each other at uh, Yankee games in my uh, older years behind the batting cage, in uh, in the pregame, and and have some good conversations. But but yeah, that was uh, that was a wild and crazy time to be a Yankee fan. Billy Martin, Reggie Thurman. And uh, so it was a lot of fun to sort of grow up with those teams. Hey, if you're still speaking to Reggie, can you ask him if he can bring back the Reggie bar? I don't know about <laughs> you, I still miss it. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, but yeah, he, I think he was pretty proud of that too. And I had a, a number of those when I was a kid. So uh, he was the founding father of really that, uh, that genre, if you will. But Reggie is someone who is uh, extremely, extremely proud of, of, everything he accomplished, including that. So we'll get to the the book here. And I mean, Coach K is somebody who you followed for decades. And, and some may think this is a sports book or a book about Duke. It seems you've said that it's much more. You, you've cited immigration, communication, leadership. Can you talk about the challenges that Mike Krzyzewski's family overcame as immigrants and, and how that shaped him to be the person, the player, the coach that we all saw? Well, he, his parents were the children of uh, Polish-American immigrants who came through Ellis Island and at the turn of the century. And his father changed his name from Krzyzewski to Cross to sort of avoid discrimination in educational and employment opportunities, not only for himself, but for his children. His parents did not have high school educations. They were laborers. They spent their adult lives working for wealthy people. And I think that had a really profound impact on, on Mike and his brother, Bill, but particularly Mike. And his mother was a cleaning lady and his father was an elevator operator and very blue collar people who 
they weren't poor, but they had enough for, for the, ba the basic family needs, and that was it. And so I, I just think Mike saw that his father gave up his name and that they did labor for, for well-off people for their entire adult lives, and that had an impact on him. I think it lit a competitive rage inside of him that really shaped that Duke program and built it into the best college basketball program in the country. So at the core of what you've seen over 40-plus years at Duke, was really, in my opinion anyway, and I think in others, the uh, uh, Chicago street kid just fighting to make his way in a country where people will take things away from you. And I think he was taught early on that you have to fight for everything and earn everything you get. And, and that's exactly what he did and why he ended up with more than 1,200 victories, a record on the men's side anyway that will never be broken. As someone who's gotten to observe him, over this long period of time, what's the one thing that you take most away from, from your observations of him? I think, uh, Jeff, he was a born leader and people have described him to me behind closed doors, just off the charts as a communicator, whether you're, despite your gender, race, age, financial status, if he has you one-on-one, -on -one, he can make you feel like you're the only other person in the world at that moment. And that's a rare gift. And something so th certainly uh, I don't have. And I, I think he was a born leader. And then going to West Point, those skills were really honed. And and uh, you see a lot of that in how he uh, built that program as a communicator, a motivator, really more so than as a strategist. A lot of coaches I talked to who competed against him and lost to him a lot said we never saw him particularly offensively as a great strategist, but an unbelievable recruiter and motivator. And that's where he blew us all away. And to motivate, you have to be a great communicator. And that's what he was. And he just knew how to reach inside of his players and get things out of them. They didn't even believe they were capable of doing. And that approach wasn't for everyone. He was an in-your-face coach behind closed doors in practice who would scream really difficult and tough, degrading things at you. And some players transferred because they didn't like that approach. But by and large, the overwhelming majority responded to it, became better players and ultimately better people uh, because of that approach. And, and again, that's why he won five national titles and, and broke uh, John Wooden's record of uh, 12 Final Fours going to a 13th in this final season. So you decide you're going to write the book. You get everything ready. You think you're all wrapped up and done. Coach K says, hey, guess what? My last season. Now you got to make changes. Uh, tell me how the retirement announcement of Coach K changed things for you. Well, Jason, that was a good problem to have because now I'm thinking, all right, well, listen, that could have been a, a very unlucky bounce if he said, uh, I'm retiring effective immediately. And my book was coming out in February and he's no longer coaching. So I think it being his farewell tour season certainly was, uh, was a fortunate bounce that could have gone the other way. And I knew when I started the process two and a half years ago that he was he was facing the end game and he was going to retire at some point. So what I am glad is that he didn't end his career on that pandemic season, missing the NCAA tournament. That season was a complete wreck and mess for him. Uh, so to finish it on a final four season with a chance to win the national title. And I, I think even though it was a painful way to go out losing to his arch rival, North Carolina, the first team he ever lost to his Duke coach also became the last team he ever lost to. But I think it was a, a worthy finish. It was a classic heavyweight championship type game in the final four. 
And, and I think it was a more appropriate way to go out than say losing in the first round to Cal State Fullerton. So, uh, but I, I think that uh, the farewell tour and the way it played out was a, a challenge for me at the end as I was uh, uh, completing my book, but it was uh, something that ended up being, being good for the book. And so I was happy to attack that part of it. One of the other challenges I think for, for any writer who's gonna write about a subject is the subject didn't talk to you for this, which, which is interesting. What was his, what, what's your understanding of what his reception was to the book and whether or not he was an obstacle in any other way or just didn't want to talk? Well, first off, he could have made my life a whole hell of a lot more difficult if he had asked others not to talk to me, which he did not do. Bill Belichick, my previous subject for a book, he did exactly that. He he lobbied people to to not cooperate with me. Of course he did. And, <laughs> oh, yeah. And so Krzyzewski, I'll give him credit. He said and he didn't know me a damn thing at the start of the process. Uh, he made it clear that... Uh, and I think his reasoning was he wants to write his own book in retirement, and that's fine. Uh, but uh, he did say he would not block anyone else. And actually, I believe he encouraged some people to talk to me who were close to him. So I ended up interviewing his closest childhood friends growing up in Chicago and uh, many, many of his players and assistants over the years. Duke actually helped set up some interviews. And after the book came out, and you never know how people are going to react to basically an autopsy of their careers and, and, and lives. And it's not an easy thing to, I imagine, read the, the negatives and the flaws and mistakes, at least as I perceive them after doing 275 interviews for the book. So uh, my understanding is he thought it was fair to very fair. And I think the one thing, and Duke uh, directly told me this, uh, some of his representatives at the university who've been there a long time, that they really appreciated that I was very transparent in the process any of the perceived negatives I told them in advance were going to be in the book in case Mike or anyone else at Duke wanted to comment on them, wanted to try to amend the record, if you will. And so there were no surprises and they knew exactly what was coming. And I think they probably appreciated that more than anything. You know, you mentioned the flaws and the book does look at all, all different situations that he ran into. He had a bumpy start at Duke. He almost, didn't know whether he was going to stay at Duke with the pressure. And I've seen you talk about a situation he had with the student newspaper. Can you talk about that incident and how that shaped what his relationship was with the student body going forward? Yeah, he, in 1990, this is going back a long way, but there were a couple of very benign articles written in the student paper, the Chronicle by student journalists. And if you go back and read them, you would be shocked to to, to feel that this should uh, inspire Coates to fly into a, a rage over it. It was really benign stuff. But I think he was trying to send a message to his players that he was willing to have their back in almost any, uh, under any set of circumstances. And so he had his uh, personal assistant contact the sports staff of the Chronicle, invite them to Cameron Indoor Stadium. So about 10 of those uh, students ended up going uh, down to Cameron and they were ushered into the locker room they were seated. Then the players filed in and sort of surrounded them standing. And then Coach K barged in and got into somebody's face and started screaming and shouting and cursing. And he's, in my 36, 37 years of doing this, he is the most profane coach I've ever been around. A lot of people are surprised by that. So I am. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the first time I ever sat behind his bench. I was going to say, apparently all you got to do is sit behind the bench, right, Ian? Yeah. And, and so that was 99, the Sweet 16 in New Jersey. 
wow, it was two and two hours and 15 minutes of extreme relentless profanity directed at everybody, players, officials, even assistant coaches like Quinn Snyder. So yeah, that's part of it. And he got in their faces and it was pretty ugly. And one of the student reporters had a tape recorder running in his, in his bag that was hidden. And Krzyzewski never said any part of this was off the record. So they printed uh, his comments, if you will, from the tape. And it created a national stir. It got picked up in the New York Times and I believe USA Today and some big publications. And it was embarrassing to him. And I don't feel that his relationship with the student body was ever the same after that. I think Krzyzewski was under the mistaken impression that the student newspaper is basically an arm of the public relations department of the university. That's not the way it works. It's journalism. And, and uh, he couldn't understand why a player or the team got a B plus. The student journalist was doing a, a report card at midseason instead of an A plus. And again, it was silly, ridiculous stuff and, and not very critical at all. But for some reason he took uh, great offense to it and went off on them. And, and I think he did pay a public price. That was the first time that America saw him in a different light, I think. And, and a part of Coach K that a lot of players saw behind closed doors, that there was still a decent amount of Bobby Knight still inside of him. And, and that was exposed in, in that article. And so that brings me to the next question, since you mentioned profanity, which is Bobby Knight. And, and they, they seem to have had a very complicated relationship. And you talk about that in your book. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think, it, listen, Knight coached him at Army and really raised him in the business, hired him at Indiana in the mid-1970s, those great Indiana Hoosier teams. Mike was a grad assistant in 74, 75, and learned how to compete and win at the highest level of Division I from Bob Knight. Knight helped him get his head coaching job at Army, helped him get the head coaching job at Duke. And then Mike starts to surpass him in the 90s and beats him at the Final Four, and that was the beginning of the end of the relationship. Knight just couldn't deal with it, the fact that his protege was now surpassing him as a head coach. And ultimately, their relationship ended in uh, 2015 at a, re at a reunion at Pinehurst of Knight's uh, first Army team, the 50th anniversary of that team. And uh, Coach K approached him at a table, and Knight completely dismissed him and blew him off. And that was one of many, many slights over the years that Coach K had uh, suffered and tried to overcome. This time he decided he had enough and he stormed out of the room and some of his former West Point teammates went out with him. And he said, that's it. I'm bleeping done with this guy. I'm not trying anymore. And at that point, Mike was probably doing 90 to 95% of the work and keeping the relationship intact and just decided to give up on it. And rightfully so. So my reporting uh, shows that was the last time they ever spoke. And it's sad because that's, what, seven years ago? And uh, I'm not sure they'll ever speak again. USA Basketball plays a very prominent role in Coach K's journey and in journeys he did not take, it seems. I wanted to ask you first about Beijing 2008 when uh, LeBron held Coach K accountable by making him hold Kobe accountable. Tell us about that. Yeah, LeBron was, and LeBron wasn't the only one on that team, uh, USA, so we're talking 2008, and, and there was a lot of pressure on Coach K, really everyone, to finally win the gold medal after the disaster in 2004 in Athens with Larry Brown. 
And then losing Coach K, losing the world championship in 2006 in Tokyo in an embarrassing way to Greece in the semis, where, where Greece just ran one play over and over again to great success, a high pick and roll, and the U.S. couldn't defend it. And so they, they needed to win that gold medal in Beijing in the worst way. And so Kobe had been, uh, Kobe was a big fan of Coach K's. He wanted him to coach the Lakers when that job was open in 2004. And so he wasn't really a, a problem on that team, but they're, they got to uh, they, they got to a point in the prelims. So they're playing it in Shanghai against Australia right before the Olympic Games began. And all of a sudden, Kobe started taking some Laker shots, not team-centric shots, and playground shots. And LeBron was upset about it, and other players were upset about it. So at one point in that game, LeBron James goes over to Coach K and says, you better fix that bleep bleep. And everyone knew who he was talking about. And now Krzyzewski's like, the last thing in the world I want to do as a college coach in my first Olympic Games is to confront Kobe Bryant on shot selection. And uh, Phil Jackson found out that's not an easy thing to do while coaching the Lakers. Now Coach K had to do it. But, you know, he talked about accountability every day and holding each other accountable. And now LeBron was doing it to him. And after he had his own moments with LeBron James earlier, and he realized he had no choice. So the next day, he pulled Kobe aside. He opened his laptop. He showed him some shots he was taking and said, we can't have this. You could do this with the Lakers, but with Team USA, when LeBron James and Jason Kidd and Chris Paul and Carmelo Anthony are your teammates, we can't have this. And, and Kobe looked at him and said, okay, coach, I got it. It won't be a problem. And it wasn't after that. that that's the last time that Krzyzewski had to address it. And he told LeBron, hey, I took care of it. And they went on to win the gold medal. The ironic part is at the end of that gold medal game against Spain, which got dicey, very dicey, Kobe Bryant had to make some acrobatic shots to, to win that game. So uh, I think it worked out in the long run for everyone involved. But it, had they lost that gold medal game, they never would have heard the end of it. That really would have been a, a damaging blow to Coach K's legacy. That Olympic experience changed him and changed how he dealt with things. You write about that. Exactly how did it change him and how did it change his, his mental makeup for the one-and-done experience? I think some, some of the Duke players thought he came back, for one, a little more player-friendly. So he spent the time in Beijing. He's obviously not berating those players like he did the uh, Duke Blue Devils, and he's not going to do that to LeBron James and Kobe Bryant. So uh, they felt he got more like a little kinder and gentler to deal with in practice. And I heard that from a number of players, but yeah, he, he decided to dive headfirst into one and done. He came back and said, you know what? After being around those guys, which was a lot of fun. I just want to coach the best of the best, whatever level we're talking about. So to do that, he had to accept one and done players. He went after John wall, lost him to Kentucky. He got in late on him, but he uh, getting Kyrie Irving and, uh, after that, you had Austin Rivers, who was a slam dunk one and done at the time. Jabari Parker, then the guys on that 2015 team, Winslow and Okafor and Jones, who won him the national title. What's kind of amazing is, you know, you could argue the best stretch of his career was the back-to-back -back, uh, championship run in 91-92. In and, and that might be, but you look at winning the national title in 2010, with that traditional upperclassman, not very talented Duke team, John Shire might have been the best player on that team, Kyle Singler, and a couple other guys, Nolan Smith. Uh, and, then, and then five years later, 
to win with a, a, basically a one and done team. That was really impressive to do it two entirely different ways within a five year span to win the national title. So, uh, but yeah, he, uh, he decided after that, that's, that led ultimately to the, to the Zion Williamson, uh, Cam Reddish, RJ Barrett clash, uh, class and, and the, the attempt to win the national title with that group in uh, 2019, which of course failed in the elite eight against Michigan state. But, uh, that that Olympic experience definitely changed his approach to recruiting at Duke, and and listen, not everyone at Duke loved that idea, and and some felt, hey, we should stick with the traditional model of the four-year player. It just wasn't plausible to do that and try to compete for Final Fours and national titles. And Coach K, at the end of the day, that was more important to him than anything was winning. So he basically turned Duke into a one-and-done NBA factory like John Calipari was running at Kentucky, and a lot of people found that pretty hard to believe. Do you think that it all played into his decision to, to retire, the, the wearing down of having to go through that year after year? And, and, and since we're dealing with that now in Philadelphia this week, do you think it played a role at all in Jay Wright, if you know? Yeah, I don't know about Jay Wright. To me, that was surprising because he's a young guy. He's, what, he's 60 and he's a young 60. 60. And my suspicion is he's got something else he wants to do with his life, whether it's TV, I think he'd be very good at that, or the NBA, maybe take a year off. I I find it hard to believe he's done coaching. And he could definitely, he, he is the perfect college coach to make the adjustment to the NBA because he understands it's a player's game first. And... I'm sure he has a fairly big ego and rightfully so, but he has it under control and he doesn't coach with ego. And I think that's a perfect mix with the NBA player today. So I, I, a year from now, I'd be surprised if there isn't a a press conference uh, introducing him somewhere as an NBA head coach, but we'll see how that plays out. I, I think with coach K it was really age. The pandemic season really took a lot out of him. He did not admit that publicly, but privately he did say that to some of his friends that I talked to. The the, the transient nature of college basketball now, the transfer portal and just players coming and going left and right. And these days, if you're averaging 17 minutes a game, but you think you should be getting 23, you're gone. You're leaving. Not too long ago, it, it was commonplace to stay and try to fight for more minutes and earn them. But that's just not the way it is anymore in college basketball. So I think you put uh, all that together with, hey, I'm, I'm going to be 75 years old. At some point, I want to spend more time with my grandchildren. And I, I, so I think there were a lot of factors involved. The, the, w- the way college basketball is today with the constant uh, turnover, I think, and the one and done, I think was a factor. It's just not one that he would admit for public consumption. You know, you mentioned Jay, and so I wanted to ask our, our – we've done a lot with the coaches versus cancer here on the show. We've interviewed Jay and all the City Six coaches. Coach K was very involved with uh, the B Foundation and a special relationship with Jim Valvano. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, their relationship, it's interesting. Valvano and Krzyzewski did not like each other. Uh, going back to their younger days as coaches at Army and Iona, and they just had such different styles. Valvano with the gregarious personality. He could have been a stand-up comic. He was that funny, naturally funny, not forced. Chashevsky wasn't like that at all. They they just uh they did not hit it off. And 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 frankly, they weren't friends for most of their ACC careers. And 
if you recall when Valvano wins a national title in 83 and Dean Smith won it the year before. So now Mike's under a lot of pressure because the two schools next door have won national titles. And in year three, Mike's losing to Wagner at home. And so everyone wanted him fired. The boosters, the alums, the students, the fans, the faculty, they all thought and wanted him gone. And uh, so he had to fight through that. And the AD who believed in him at the time, Tom Butters in, in hiring him, despite the fact he was nine and 17 in his final season at army, doubled down on it and gave him a contract extension which seemed like the craziest decision ever and turned out to be the greatest move maybe in the history of college basketball. I, they did not with Valvano until Mike had success. And then Valvano leaves the profession, goes in the TV. They started to develop more of a relationship then. And then of course, in his dying days, Mike was in his hospital room at Duke every day. I think he was the last non family member to see him alive. So uh, not friends for most of their careers, but it was once Valvano got away from coaching and got into TV. And I think they found a lot of common ground and they weren't competing so fiercely head to head that they saw they had a lot more in common than they realized. And that developed a, a pretty special friendship until the day Jim Valvano died. We could talk to you all day, but we know that you've got to run. I did want to ask you the last thing you gave a piece of advice, a pro tip, on an interview I saw about making the extra phone call. Can you talk about that life advice and how it got you an interview that most will never forget? Well, in, in any industry, if you outwork people that, that sometimes will neutralize or negate the fact that, that some might be more talented than you are. And certainly there are plenty of people more talented than I am in this business, but I don't think too many have outworked me. And so the extra phone call to me is, just an example of grinding and, and finding a way and how if you do that, if you have a, a work ethic that is just really big on attention to detail 24-7 and that that will get you where you want to go. Uh, I was, so this is 2007, the Yankees are playing the Cleveland Indians at the time in the playoffs, down 0-2 uh, in a best of five. So now they have to win three straight sudden death games. George Steinbrenner still owned the team in his final year, really, of running that team. Most famous owner in the history of American sports. But his health had declined, and he hadn't given an interview in, in about a year. But I knew where he stayed when he came to New York, and word was he was going to attend Game 3 at Yankee Stadium in that series. Game 2, if you recall, Jabba Chamberlain was on the mound and was attacked by a, a, a swarm of midges from Lake Erie. And uh, George Steinbrenner was really upset that Joe Torrey did not pull the team off the field. The umpires should have done it, but they didn't. And he was upset at that. He was upset at the fact the Yankees were down 0-2. And also Cleveland, that's his hometown team. He didn't want to lose to the Indians in that playoff series. And now they faced uh, that very prospect. So, uh, but I, I was done for the day. That day, I had written a Roger Clemens column. He was pitching game three. And I hadn't seen my wife in months. I was working on an Arnie and Jack uh, golf book. And uh, we were supposed to go to dinner that night, but I knew where Steinbrenner was staying. And I just thought there was a 1% chance if I called. He usually did return my calls, but he had gone Greta Garbo uh, that year and his health was in decline. So it was bothering me that I was going to dinner knowing where George Steinbrenner was staying and figuring I still had a 1% chance to maybe get him on the phone. 
And I had called during the day that hotel and couldn't get through and left a message. And I just thought before I go to this dinner with my wife, I need to make one more attempt or it's going to bother me all night. So I did. And I got the hotel operator. And the way it worked was the operator would then transfer you to George Steinbrenner's personal operator, this hotel, the Regency in New York. And I get the personal operator. She asked uh, who I was and I explained who I was. And she said, all right, hold on. So I'm sort of just waiting for her to come back and saying he's not available. He's not in. Just I'll take a message like last time. And she got back on the phone and she said, go ahead, Mr. O'Connor. And I was like, what do you mean, go ahead, Mr. And then I heard George's voice. Ian, how are you? And uh, it was an unmistakable voice. And I had talked to him many times and I was startled. And I had to gather myself and recover and start asking questions because I figured this is not going to be a long interview. And he said that if uh, Joe Torrey, who, of course, became a Hall of Fame manager, if he doesn't win this series, I'll probably let him go. And he said about uh, five or six other pretty fascinating things about Jeter, about A-Rod, about the Lake Erie Midges. And, and so it was a pretty big story. It might, it's probably the biggest story I ever had. It was the last interview George Steinbrenner ever gave. And he, he was firing a Hall of Fame manager in the middle of a playoff series. Now, the internet and Twitter uh, weren't nearly as big then as they uh, are now. And I can just imagine that story today, how that would have exploded. But it, it did. Uh, it made enough noise back then, and ultimately, Tory was given an offer. They lost the series, of course. Tory was given an offer designed to be refused. He refused it. He was sort of forced out. But also, George's uh, George Steinbrenner's sons basically said, "That's it, Dad," and they took over. And so that went down as the last interview he ever gave. And fittingly enough, he threatened to fire a successful manager in that interview. So. <laughs> I have to say, I was just proud that uh, though my wife was upset, we didn't go to dinner that night. I, I was proud that I at least made that extra phone call that uh, that evening. Well, look, we will always make the extra phone call to you. Uh, we hope to have you back again. We could talk to you all day, uh, get your book here about Coach K, get your book about Jeter, Jack and Arnie, Belichick, take your pick, read you in the New York Post. Ian O'Connor, thank you so much for the time and the conversation. Well, thank you, Jason and Jeff. It was my pleasure and uh, best of luck. Congratulations on your success. Thank you so much. You have a great day. You too. Jeff, I know that we're not really dookies here and Coach K isn't our guy in the city, but to hear the lessons uh, from him is the type of show that we do. So I'm glad we got a few minutes with Ian and I thought you asked the right question about uh, the impact with our, our guy in our city who's stepping away this week. Well, that's it. I mean, Coach Case was always at least the model coach um, or the coach that everybody aspired to be in college coaching. Jay Wright seemed to be the guy who was set up to kind of take over that role. And so it's surprising that immediately after Coach K retires, Jay Wright decides to step down. And he's only 60 years old and as somebody who's close to that, um, that's not old. So it's surprising to see Jay Wright step down and, and Jay Wright has followed coach K in so many different ways, including the coaches versus cancer, the things that he does in the community, but you got to wonder whether or not a coach like Jay Wright has said, you know, with things like the transfer portal, this is just too hard. This is not every year, but now it's cycles. It's now every month that you're worrying about not only who you have to go out and recruit, and whether they're going to be here for just one year, or just two years, 
Now you have to worry about if they're not getting enough playing time. Are they going to leave in the middle of the season? Are they going to leave at the end of the season? You don't even have the players that you think you have. And if I'm Jay Wright, he's accomplished so much. I'm sure that he's set. Now he can sit there and say, okay, I've done everything that I can do here. And I just don't want to keep chasing at this point in my life. I don't know what his next act is, but you would think he can write his own ticket. He's got the looks for TV. He's well-spoken. He can coach at any level. So I would think we'll see some more Jay Wright again. Jeff, let's leave it there. Uh, let's root for the Sixers tomorrow to close it out. Root for the Phillies to keep hitting a little bit. Root for the Flyers season to just end at this point. <laughs> and for the Union to, to pick up another win and stay in first place. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.